0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me ask you to ponder what in life has been worth the wait. That's a common phrase, worth the wait. Someone will say, it's a 45-minute wait to get a table at this new restaurant, but it's worth the wait. Or... A new iPhone is coming out, and then it's delayed, but you hope it's going to be worth the wait. Not all things are worth the wait. Of course, these things are subjective, not scientific. There's no measurement to determine whether something is worth the wait. But still, we say that. We say something is worth the wait. And many things we say are worth the wait are really no big deal at all in the grand scheme of things. They're usually quite temporary. They have momentary significance. A meal might be worth the wait, or so we say, just as we finish it. But we go on. Life goes on. Your favorite band might get back together after 30 years, and you get tickets, and you go to the concert, and you might say it was worth the wait, But you go back to the same old life you had before, not much changes. Surely one of the things that is most worth the wait is a good spouse. A healthy, sweet marriage is indeed worth the wait. Who could doubt that children are worth the wait in a special life-altering kind of way? But even with these biggies like marriage and children, they change our lives permanently, yes. But, but most likely, people aren't going to be talking about our families for centuries to come. Our families probably won't drastically change the world. But in our study of the book of Acts, we left off with the disciples waiting. This week, we'll see... And what they were waiting for was indeed worth the wait. It was a game changer. Jesus had told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait. Something big is coming. It's the promise of the Father. It's the power from on high. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And much like the coming of Jesus with his birth and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension... Things will never be the same. There's no going back. It was a long wait, but it was worth the wait. So with the Jesus-sent Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit's presence and empowerment and gospel illumination and life change, things will never be the same. There's no going back. It's a new era, not that the Spirit didn't exist before, but he didn't do what he does here in Acts chapter 2 before this day. And we Christians are here today as proof of a seismic, tectonic, world-altering event that hit hard on this one day in the Bible, which we call Pentecost. And it continues to reverberate and shake and spread throughout the world today and will for all eternity. So let's read Acts chapter 2. Not the whole thing. We'll stop at verse 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt in the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling our own tongues, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we'll stop there for this week. Peter's sermon goes on for another couple dozen verses or so. It goes through the rest of chapter two, which is a long chapter. Peter's sermon has three points to it. He quotes three Old Testament passages in order to explain the phenomenon that was going on there in the upper room, which spilled out into the city streets of Jerusalem. So three passages, three points to Peter's sermon. We'll only get to the first of those today. And that will be the last of three points I have. Peter's first point, if you can keep this straight, is my last of three points. I'm following Peter's lead with three points for my sermon. So here's my sermon. We'll we'll look at the manifestation of the Spirit in verses 1 through 4, a reaction to the arrival of the Holy Spirit in verses 5 to 13, and then an explanation, or at least part of the the explanation that Peter gives for what's happening in the rest of our verses for today. So first, the supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It took place, we're told, on Pentecost, one of three yearly Jewish feasts held in Jerusalem where the Jewish people were required to to go. No matter where else they live, they must travel in to Jerusalem for such feasts. Feast like Passover. Passover was one of these three feasts. Passover celebrated the freedom from Egypt, from its slavery and tyranny, and particularly that night when God passed over the homes that had a, a sign of faith on the doorposts. The blood of the lamb was there in the do- doorposts, and, and then their sons were spared, and then they were, just the day after, released and set free from bondage. Of course, you might remember that it was right around Passover that Jesus was crucified. And that wasn't accidental or coincidental. It was purposeful in in signifying. Jesus was the new, final, sacrificial lamb. He gave us Passover. By his blood, God passes over our sin and guilt. Pentecost, a different holiday, was 50 days after Passover. That's why Pentecost, 50, 5, pente. And like the crucifixion happening on Passover, the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost surely was no accident or coincidence. Pentecost in the Old Testament was the celebration of harvest. Praising God for his provision in your crops. Well, this specific Pentecost in Acts 2 would be a kind of harvest as well. Not of real crops, but of human beings for the glory of Jesus. A new harvest was about to begin here. Verse 1 literally reads in the Greek, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. It's when it hit the calendar, yes, but more than that, it's when it was also coming to pass. Almost like a a pun, it had come to pass. Jesus was breaking through the old wineskins with new wine. Pentecost was also a fitting time for this miracle and special event to go down because of the influx of pilgrims from faraway places. It's estimated that Jerusalem would grow by one million people for one of these feasts. In verses 9 through 10, if you look there, we see people came from far and wide. They were diverse people from diverse places. They're assembled in God's providence to witness an unexpected, spectacular event and to hear what it meant. That's getting ahead of ourselves slightly. It starts not on the city streets, but first up in a private upper room with 120 disciples, together in one place. They were waiting as Jesus told them to do. No doubt they were still, as we saw last week, devoting themselves to prayer. They had just settled the matter of Judas's replacement and reestablished the 12-man apostleship, which would be foundational for the first-hand witness accounts. Maybe they would wait some more. Who knows how much time passed. But then, suddenly... On Pentecost Day, whoosh! It may have sounded something like that, but it was probably much, much louder than that because Luke says it was a mighty rushing wind. People around tornadoes say that they often sound like freight trains. That's what maybe happened here. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house. Wind in the Bible is often a symbol or a sign of God's presence and his power, his working, his activity. So in Job, God answers Job out of the whirlwind. In the Psalms, God rides on the wind. In 1 Kings 19, the Lord passed by with a great and strong wind which tore the mountains apart. More specifically, wind, at times in the Bible, relates to the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, the Spirit isn't wind. We don't say wind is God or God is wind. But wind signals his presence and power in working, just like fire sometimes does. And that's what they saw next. They, they heard something, then they saw, verse 3, divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each of them. Fire in the Bible is often a symbol for God's holy presence. Again, fire isn't God, God isn't fire, but God chooses at times to signify his presence with fire, like the burning bush in Exodus 3. Or on Mount Sinai, when God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, that mountain was lit up with thunder, lightning clouds, and fire. When God led his people through the wilderness, you'll remember it was a cloud by day that led them and a fire by night in the sky that they saw. When Solomon's temple was built, Solomon prayed and dedicated the temple to the Lord. And then immediately, fire from heaven came down and filled the temple. In fact, in the days of the later Old Testament prophets after Solomon, there we find God promising a day to come when he would fill a new temple with fire once again And do it in an unprecedented way. So you can read about this in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai 2 talks about a new temple coming with far greater glory than any temple before. And God will come to it and fill it with great glory. And then he will gather the nations to come into it. And that's what we have played out in Acts 2. Maybe not the way... People in Haggai's day thought it would go, but here it is. Fire has come upon these people as a sign of God's presence filling them. They are his new temple. They are the church. They're the people of God. And here in Acts 2, this fire appears in the shape of a tongue, no doubt because of the speaking that they were about to do. They were divided tongues, it says, Not forked tongue, like Tonto was always bemoaning, but divided tongues. We can't really know this for sure, what this means or what this looks like, but I'm picturing this, that a tongue of fire, as it were, Rested on one of the disciples, then divided and rested on another, and then divided and rested on another, and divided and rested on another, until it rested on each one of them, verse 3. They were all, verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what's unique here. That's what's special. God showing up in power wasn't new, God empowering people for special ministry wasn't new. God and his spirit indwelling individuals wasn't new. But Acts 2 is so much more than that. Here, it's it's a game changer. God's comings in the Old Testament, his manifestations, his spirit fillings in the Old Testament were particular, temporary, specific. They came in pockets for moments. But now... It's indiscriminate, and it's permanent. Never before this had there yet been a pouring out of the Spirit, like God said through the prophet Isaiah would happen one day. Isaiah 44, I will pour out my Spirit on you and your offspring. John the Baptist, back in Luke 3, said when Jesus comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll baptize you, he'll dunk you, he will drench you, he will douse you with the Holy Spirit. And that's the language Jesus used in Acts 1. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's what's happening. That's what's starting in Acts 2. It was unique. The Holy Spirit came upon all the disciples there, not just the apostles. It came with power and fire, and so they spoke. They spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4 says. Now, what are these other tongues? Well, I'm convinced that they are human languages. The miracle here is that they spoke in languages that they hadn't previously known or learned. I think that's very obvious in the next section with the crowd's reaction. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, in case you're wondering, I think what we find in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 about tongues there is probably pretty different than what we find in Acts 2. In in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, tongues is said to be a heavenly language that requires an interpreter or else it's senseless. It's nonsense. And that's not what we see in Acts 2. I'll say more about these tongues when we get to the next section, the Acts 2 tongues but I wanted to get that out of the way now and lay my cards on the table before anyone interrupted me with a question. (laughs) Now before we move on from this upper room, let's take note of something. That this experience in the upper room, yes, was personal and powerful. It was supernatural. But it wasn't inward or subjective It wasn't merely inexperience. It wasn't a feeling. God showed up there in that room in an audible, visible, undeniable, unmistakable way. There would be no need for any of these 120 disciples to say, did you just feel that? (laughs) do Do you sense this right now? No, no, no. Why that matters is that some today talk of trying to recreate Pentecost, to to have an upper room experience again. They say, if we wait long enough and pray hard enough and seek the Lord intently enough and then wait some more and wait some more, then maybe we'll have a Pentecost moment again. And then they'll say to their friend, did you feel that? Did you sense that? I feel it. I think I feel it. Uh, I guess I don't. Well, see, Acts 2 is, in this sense, utterly unique. Tongues will occur a couple more times in Acts. Only a couple. Chapter 10 and chapter 19. But never again with this unique combination of sight and sound and spirit and speech. Not all those. Now, we... Might later on in this sermon, talk about the significance and relevance of Acts 2 for today. There is much significance, but we'll need to be careful to not cheapen Acts 2 when we do that. We shouldn't accommodate Acts 2 to our personal feelings in private encounters with God no matter how special and sweet or powerful those might be Acts 2 is a seismic tectonic earth-altering moment in the birth of the church now that doesn't mean that the miraculous doesn't happen today it just means what I said Acts 2 was a seismic tectonic earth-altering moment in the birth of the church And here's how the birth began. Apparently, the utterances of the disciples from the upper room started to spill out into the streets. Luke doesn't give us specifics. He just goes from the upper room scene to a reaction from the crowd in the city streets. What's their reaction? Shock. So secondly, the shocked reaction of the international crowd. The international, multilingual makeup of this Jerusalem crowd is really emphasized by Luke. They're in Jerusalem, due to primarily, perhaps they lived there or, or traveled in, but many of them had, had come from afar. They were, verse 5, devout men from every nation under heaven. That is, every known nation, every nation known part of the world was represented there among these people it was an international crowd it was made up of Jews and proselytes were told in verse 11 that is those of Jewish heritage and those of non-Jewish heritage who had converted to Judaism so Jew and Gentile and together they were Bewildered, it says in verse 6, because each one was hearing Jesus' disciples speak in his own language, not the language of the speaker, the language of the hearer. It was a miracle. They were amazed and astonished because those speaking were Galileans. Now we know from elsewhere in the Bible that Galileans apparently had a rather famous accent. Uh, When Peter denies the Lord three times, the servant girl says, I know you were with him, you're a Galilean, your accent betrays you. So we don't know what it was like, but it's a giveaway. Here are Galileans speaking, and they're not speaking, either maybe with their Galilean accent or their commonly spoken language, Aramaic or or Greek. These men would have known Aramaic, Greek, Greek. In Hebrew, but here in this cosmopolitan, eclectic, international crowd, they are hearing these Galileans speak varied languages. You see, verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, 15 different nations and nationalities are listed. And they're listed in a way that bounces in every direction of the compass. Mesopotamia in the east, Pontus in the north, Egypt down in the south, over to Rome in the far west. Jews and Gentiles from all over the world were hearing miraculously the praises of God in their native language, their mother tongue. It was not a gift of ears, but a gift of tongues. It was not a miraculous hearing of languages. It was a miraculous speaking of foreign languages by men who didn't know these languages. They were telling these things in their own tongues. Now, the disciples didn't need a miracle of speaking in other languages in order to communicate to Mesopotamians or Elamites or the like. Note that carefully because Peter will go on in just a bit to begin a speech. And he does it in a shared, common language, probably Aramaic. The miracle of tongues wasn't needed in order to communicate with this, these people. There wasn't a language barrier. I know that raises the question, well, then why is this here? Why did God plan this at all? Well, hold that thought. Note this as well, that today God could Theoretically, give missionaries the miracle of speaking previously unknown, unlearned languages so that their hearers can hear in their native tongue immediately without language school. That could happen. I won't say it can't. I'm not saying it never happened. But it's not exactly what happened in Acts 2 because in Acts 2, the miracle is followed by a sermon in a known and commonly shared language. We never want to minimize the importance of missionaries spending years and years and years learning and honing a new language for the gospel's sake. No missionary should ever skip language school and wait to get zapped like these guys did. Acts 2 has a miracle of speaking in native languages as a sign it's a sign of something again it's not that they needed to have this miracle happen in order to communicate it was a sign the miracle itself didn't save a sermon followed preaching the gospel but the miracle was a indeed a powerful sign a sign of what what does it mean Well, that's the question of some. What does it mean? Some in the crowd just dismissed it. Verse 13, these guys are probably drunk. Maybe they didn't stick around long enough to actually hear their own language being spoken. It was all foreign to them, and they just dismissed what was happening. They were even derisive about it. These guys are drunk. But the majority of the crowd was shocked and awed by the phenomenon, and they asked the essential question. It's followed by five different words used to describe their, well, their bewilderment. They're amazed and astonished, amazed and perplexed, and then they ask, what does this mean? So what does this mean? Well, here's one angle to its meaning that we can sort of infer from a wider angle lens of the Bible. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? There, humanity had grown so wicked in its sophistication and self sufficiency that they thought they could build a tower into the heavens. So God intervened, He confused their languages. It forced them to scatter according to their languages. So it says in Genesis 11, that place was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Well, Acts 2 is something like an undoing of Babel. Not quite an undoing, maybe it's an overcoming of Babel. It's a unification of diverse people with diverse languages all around a single thing. Not this time a tower, but a cross in a resurrection in a man, Jesus Christ. It was the plan all along for this thing to go global. God promised to Father Abraham that his seed... Singular, would be a blessing to all the nations. And more recently, that seed of Abraham, Jesus, had given his disciples this global charge. At the end of Luke, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, starting with Jerusalem. In Acts 1, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Now the disciples will later on have to leave Jerusalem. It's gotta get to the ends of the earth. You can't wait for the ends of the earth to come to you, but here in this microwaved moment of Acts 2, the world comes to them to witness the miracle of tongues. Again, a microwave of the gospel global plan. In Acts 2 there, those verses that list all those different places and people, you've got peoples, you've got places, you have languages. People, places, languages. If you fast forward several decades, you find the apostle John on an island and he gets a vision of heaven. He gets a vision of angelic worship. They're worshiping the lamb, saying he is worthy because he was slain, because he purchased for God men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's where this thing is going. So that's one explanation for what's going on in Acts 2 on the grand scheme of things. Now, Peter offers a slightly more specific explanation for the baptism of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues. He looks to the prophet Joel. So now thirdly, the scriptural explanation from Peter. We've seen the manifestation of the Spirit, the reaction to it from the crowd, and now the scriptural explanation. As I said earlier, Peter has three points to his sermon three different Old Testament quotations he quotes from Joel 2 Psalm 16 and then Psalm 110 and we'll only have time to look at the first one today notice in verse 14 Peter stands with the 11 to respond question what's 11 plus 1 It's 12, the 12, remember that from last week, the foundational nature of the 12. Luke is confirming for us that the decision to add a 12th to the 11 was right, and they are standing together, even though one speaks for the group. Peter starts by clearing the air with those who had dismissed these tongues as simply drunkenness. He says, boys, I don't think so. It's only nine in the morning. That's what the third hour is. And then he quotes Joel 2. Let's read it again, starting in verse 17. And in the last days, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Peter insists that what these men in Jerusalem had witnessed, this, he says, is what was foretold by Joel. And it's a sign, he says, of the last days. Many of us think of the last days as something that happens at the very end of time, something very cataclysmic. I'm asked several times a year as a pastor, Pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? And guess what I always say? Yes. We have been since Jesus came the first time. We've been in the last days. This is simply and unavoidably what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 1 verse 2, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was made manifest in these last times. Or 1 or John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. This is what Peter teaches in Acts 2, that the explanation for the miracle of the Spirit there in Jerusalem is that this is the last days. God said through Joel hundreds of years before the coming of Christ that in those days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That doesn't mean every human being on the face of the planet, but it does mean all peoples, all kinds of people, all of his people in all places. Notice the categories of people that are in Joel 2. You've got sons and daughters, young men and old men, male servants and female servants. So the pouring out of the Spirit isn't tied to gender or to age or to social class. There is a new indiscriminate and permanent gift of the Holy Spirit. And this will result in speaking. The Spirit will be poured out and they will prophesy. And that's what they did earlier in Acts 2. You might think of prophecy as simply telling the future, and it sometimes is that. And sometimes it's just God-wrought, God-filled proclamation It has different forms. It has different reasons. But it's God-wrought, God-filled proclamation to people. And these people in Acts 2 were prophesying, or you could say, declaring the mighty works of God. Moses longed for this day. In, In Numbers 11, God told Moses, take 70 men and go outside the camp and i 'm going to put my spirit in them, and then they will prophesy and that happened. They prophesied for a bit, not long at all it 's like a, a blip on the screen. they, they prophesied, and then that 's it. But someone finds out that there are these two guys with funny names, I forgot which, but there are two guys in the camp who didn 't go out with these seventy others and And they're in the spirit prophesying. And so someone goes to Moses and tells him that maybe he should stop them. And then Moses says, oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And his wish came true. It came true in Acts 2 and ever since. Joel promises not only prophecy with spirit indwelling, but they will dream dreams and see visions. He says. Now, dreams or visions isn't in Acts two, but we see dreams slash visions, whatever you want to call them, happen later on in Acts. What about wonders in heaven, signs on the earth? What about the sun shall be turned to darkness? Verse twenty. Well, that actually happened. When Jesus died on the cross, the sun went dark. It was dark for three hours, we're told. So some of these things have happened. Some of these things are starting to happen. Some of these things will happen. What about the moon being turned to blood? Well, some of these things may not be literal. Hold that thought. And some of these things are still waiting of future fulfillment. Let me take each of those separately. Some of these things quoted here in Joel 2 may not be literal. If I make you nervous that I'm playing with the Bible here, let me try to explain it. When we come to this thing in the Bible that we call apocalyptic literature, which Joel 2 uses, and so does the book of Revelation, we find mixed metaphors and we find some things that are undeniably symbolic. So you go to Revelation and you say, how many horns does Satan have? And you might say, well, I've seen the pictures. He has two. You might read in Revelation, no, he, he's got 12 there. Does he really have 12 horns? Maybe. Maybe he, it's just a, a picture of wickedness to the nth degree. It could say he had nth number of horns. Is Satan really a dragon? That's what Revelation says. I thought he was a serpent back in Genesis. You're missing the point, right? The, the goal is not to draw a dragon serpent. Are locusts in Revelation really locusts? Or helicopters that John had no idea what those are, so we called them locusts? Or instead, are locusts just... Is that just a description of a really nasty scene that would have been among the most devastatingly fearful for ancient people in agricultural places? Will Jesus really have a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth when he comes back? Almost no one says yes to that, no matter how quote-unquote literal, you want to be with the Bible. So when Joel 2 says, the moon will be turned to blood, I don't think anyone takes that in the most literal way possible, that the moon one day will become a giant bag of blood. That's literally what it says. The moon will be turned to blood. Oh, I know, it means the moon will be turned red. And perhaps that will happen. And perhaps it is just a real funky way to describe crazy, cataclysmic things. I don't know. But literal or symbolic, some things in Joel, no doubt, might still be future. It might still be future. So the moon turning to blood, that may literally happen someday. It may symbolically happen someday. According to Peter, these last days were happening before a final day. You see verse 20, this is before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. So there is a final day, a day singular. And Peter says, this now is the beginning of the end. The spirit's coming marks the last days. Cataclysmic things have already happened. Jesus performed signs and wonders. The sun was darkened at his death. There was an earthquake, and and people came out of their graves when Jesus died. Signs were taking place right before the very eyes of those who witnessed this scene in Jerusalem at Pentecost the spirit was being poured out on all the disciples in the upper room and they were prophesying declaring god's mighty acts in a miraculous spirit filled way and there is coming a day when the lord comes again a final day a great and magnificent day, great as in terrifying, not good, but magnificently good for some. It's great, meaning terrifying for some, it is magnificently good for others. Now, Joel blended all this stuff together. How could he do otherwise from his vantage point? I've said before, it helps when we talk about the different perspectives from the Old Testament versus the New Testament, to think of mountain ranges from far away versus up close or right in mountain ranges. So from Rio Rancho, our Sandia mountain looks like a mountain. It looks like a sheet. It looks like it's one thing. But if you start driving east on tramway... It's not long before you start seeing this thing has layers. These mountains have ridges, layer upon layer in there. There are large valleys between these mountain peaks. Now we know that there are two major mountain peaks in God's plan. Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The beginning of the last days and the end of days. The prophets could see both, but they couldn't distinguish between them. We can now. We know that with the coming of Jesus meant also the coming of the Holy Spirit. But but for Joel, these are flattened out a little bit. And not only do they have the ridges of Christ's first coming and second coming there in view, but not distinguishable but but they also had an extra ridge to deal with meaning their own context and their own near future history so Joel originally wrote to address a recent locust plague that had happened in Judah and God's people had been clamoring for the day of the Lord to come they thought the day of the Lord would mean the end of this locust plague their vindication and the judgment of God's enemies And Joel says, whoa, 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 hold on. Maybe, maybe not. That day will be a great and magnificent day. It will be a day of salvation and judgment. What will it be for you? Yes, in those last days, good things will happen, like God pouring out his spirit on all his people. But you better make sure that you're really his people. So Joel calls on sinful Judah to repent and to be restored to the Lord. Not just to look to the Lord for a reprieve and for a judgment of sinners out there as if they're not sinners. No, they need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You, Judah, need saving. In fact, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see how this has important relevance for Jonah's day right then and for the coming of Jesus and for the Spirit's coming for the day of Pentecost and for Peter's sermon. It has important relevance for our day today and for the final day that's still to come. There are mountain ridges there. So here we are. Know where we are. Know what's behind us. Know what's ahead of us. Know that the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit has already come. That we're in the last days. Acts 2 was indeed a special moment in God's plan. It was unique in many ways. But we can also say the plan doesn't stop there. This is a giant stone that keeps rolling down the hill. Acts 2 wasn't just a sign. It was the start of something. So today, it's still true. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not only saved, but filled with the spirit for proclamation. Young and old, male and female, servants and sons. They all get the same spirit. They are all filled with him. They are all appointed as prophets of the most high God. So there's an invitation here in what Peter speaks. There's a warning. It's the last day. Call on his name and be saved. And there's an invitation. Call on his name and be saved. The invitation is utterly explicit at the end of Peter's sermon. Notice there, verse 38, he ties up some loose ends. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you, you too, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. You see what Peter did there? He clarifies and specifies the name. Joel just said, call on the name of the Lord. Peter gets more precise, the name of Jesus Christ. He'll make it even more explicit in chapter 4 when he'll say, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He clarified and specified the name that we call on. He clarifies the welcome. He, he, he makes more clear the everyone that Joel was inviting everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved everyone you your children any who are far off all who far off who are far off from the Lord very far off from the Lord you call on the name of the Lord and be saved so today you you in this room Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Don't delay. It's the last days for crying out loud. Don't delay because you're missing out. God is so good. His offer is so kind. His spirit is such a gift. Today, you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. What does that look like? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord and be saved? Well, it means believing that you need saving, feeling desperate, desperate with your sin, your trouble, your guilt, and your guilty conscience. Believe you need saving. Believe that he can save you and he alone, that there is no other name given among men whereby which we must be saved. Believe that Jesus can save you by his death and resurrection. Call on the name of the Lord means verbalize it to him. Verbalize your need and your trust to Jesus. Ask him for salvation. Say to him this morning, Lord Jesus, I know I've gone astray from your ways. I know I deserve your judgment. Lord Jesus, I need your mercy that you purchased for me at the cross. I believe you died in my place for my sins. I believe you can save me. I believe that's my only hope. Would you save me? you say, I don't know if I believe that enough. Well, then say with this man in the gospel accounts who said, I believe, help my unbelief. If you prayed that this morning for the first time, or you've prayed something like that many, many years ago or decades ago, know this: No matter where you come from this morning, no matter what education or IQ you might have, no matter your past, no matter your age, no matter your heritage, you have been given the Holy Spirit. It's indiscriminate and it's permanent. You might be a nobody in the world's eyes, but the Holy Spirit, God, has been poured into your heart. He is in you. God is in you. The Holy Spirit is not the Ringo Starr of the Beatles Trinity. He's not a knockoff Trinity member. He's God, He's fully God, and He's within us. And that doesn't just mean comfort, but also calling doesn't just mean calling, but it also means equipping. You're a prophet. You're a prophet. You're what Moses dreamed of. You're what Joel foretold. You're what Peter said had come. You may never speak in an unknown tongue in your life. You probably will not see tongues of fire over your head someday. But you have the same spirit. You have the same assignment. In many ways, you live in the same era, the last days. And in these last days, you must tell the mighty works of God. You must keep saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no other name given among men whereby which we must be saved. Now, I suspect some of us still have some unresolved questions about tongues, about spiritual gifts, about the book of Acts, about the Spirit, about the baptism of the Spirit, what are fillings versus baptism. I, this week, wrote in, in FAQ, just for my own purposes so far, maybe it'll turn into something more, but FAQs on Acts 2 and tongues and the Holy Spirit, and, and it's, a, it's I don't know, a page and a half or so, it's a lot. I thought about including that in this morning's sermon and and I thought, no, no, we'll get to other questions you have as we work our way through the book of Acts. But I, I want us just to sit here and be still for now leaving some questions for another day. Let's just relish in what we know God has done, that the wait is over. Jesus has come. The Spirit has come. He is at work in this world. He will finish what he started. Let's just revel in the promise that we have come to take hold in, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's just revel in the gift of the Spirit and the power that he puts within us indiscriminately. Let's remember afresh his commission for us to go to the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Let's revive this call upon our lives to represent him well to the world to to declare the mighty acts of god let us this morning stand in awe of the spirit giving god and the spirit who is god he points to jesus jesus saves We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus saves so sweetly, so successfully, so thoroughly. We thank you for your spirit, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the promise of the Father. We thank you for the sending of the spirit that you have given. We thank you that your love has been shed abroad in our hearts by your spirit. That your spirit says, Abba, Father, into our hearts to affirm our adoption as sons And daughters, your spirit does so many things. And Acts 2, in some ways, is just the tip of the iceberg. Holy Spirit, we thank you for power from on high. And we pray you would empower us to proclaim to a dying world that Jesus saves. Amen.